Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Today I'm going to continue in 1 Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy. If you're new here to City on a Hill, welcome. You're at the right place. Pastor Leonard already said it can be some, somewhat off-putting to come somewhere and you maybe don't feel like you know what's going on or people are raising their hand or, uh, you know, that can be confusing. But you're at the right place. You're at the right place. And I hope you'll come back and I hope you'll continue to seek. And if you have been here, you'll know that I'm in a series on Paul's letter to Timothy. It's 1 Timothy. And today we're going to be in chapter 3. In the midst of all that's going on, the message is probably more of a reminder than a new commandment. It's a reminder of what we're all about. What is this? We're gathered here corporately on a Sunday morning. What is this all about? Now look, for some of you, you need to hear me say this. This message, I think, is going to be most beneficial. I think it's going to bless everybody because it's the Word of God. But I think it's going to be most beneficial to those of you who've been around church for a while. In fact, some of you have been around church for a long while. I'm just curious. Anybody like me? My story goes all the way back. Would anybody, I mean, anybody grew up in church? I mean, since like, okay, yeah, see some hands. All right, church people. Yeah. Now, when I say I I grew up in church, I don't mean like I joined the church at a young age. Like, I was in church nine months before I was born. I was a fetus, praising the Lord with my gills or however that word (laughs) is. I mean, day one, day, day, you know, nine months T minus one, like, you know, from the beginning. Uh, and so if you are not careful, you'll do what uh, Pastor Linda was touching on, and that's just sort of come in here and go through the motions and not really think about what is going on today. And so today's message is really, I think, going to be most beneficial to you if you've been around church for a while. If you're new to church, this is great because you may not have any of these preconceived expectations, so it's going to help you. So for everybody, the title of today's sermon is, How to Behave in Church. Yeah, I know. Now, the kids just got dismissed, but how many of you know, again, there's a certain subset of you that know exactly what I'm talking about. I remember being a little boy, and I'm sitting completely on the other end of the pew. I know, James, you know what I'm talking about. Other end of the row, and I'm drawing on the bulletin, and I'm getting too loud with my friends, and my mom, who is, this is, she's got to be 20 feet away, and I'm convinced all moms are ninjas, because somehow, 20 feet away, pop on the back of my head, I'm like, how does that, you know, go, go gadget mom, like, they know, they can do it, right? Uh, that's important. I'm actually not talking about how to behave in church. I'm talking not just, you know, we got to be reverent, we got to be nice. But Paul is saying to Timothy, do you realize what you're a part of on a Sunday morning? Do you realize what we should be about on a Sunday morning? As we gather together, do you have any clue the power and the, and the things of God that we're dealing with? So here's what he says in 1 Timothy 3 verse 14. Now, Tim, I, you know, I hope to come to you soon, right? That's, that's, I could tell you all this in person, but should I get delayed? Because, you know, he's in and out of prison and shipwrecked and beaten and, you know, he's got a lot going on. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, and the biggest cause of his delay was the beheading that was about to happen. That'll, that'll, that'll derail your plans. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So there it is. Do you understand? Paul's talking about how one is to behave in the household of God. And he uses three descriptions for the church, three little phrases for the church. 
and they form the three points of this message. So if you're a note taker, you can jot these down. This is going to form the basis of the sermon. What he calls, and, and for Paul, these are just sort of ancillary descriptors, and he moves on with his main point. But because it's the living and active word of God, these are so rich and so uh, powerful as they talk about what we are. They provide definitions for what we're all about that I made them the very focus of the sermon. So, so the first one is right there. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. And he calls the church three things. The first is right there, the household of God. So if you're a note taker and you're thinking about, okay, the sermon is about what is the church? I mean, big picture, what are we all doing here on Sunday morning? The first thing you can write down is the church, the household of God. What does this mean? Well, the household means roughly family. For the people that Paul was writing to, it would have meant not only family, but everybody who's under your roof. So family and like Downton Abbey, all the, you know, the servants and all the, the, the pets and the life. It would have been everything that, you know, the whole, the whole uh, uh, gamut. All the guests that are in town, your in-laws and your, you know, your whole extended family. So there's so much rich imagery here when he says we are the household of God. What does it mean to be in the household of God? You'll hear people say sometimes, uh, even in secular environments, you know, we're all God's children. There's even a Christmas song that says, and this, this, this is one of the weirdest songs, and I'm the only, maybe I'm, I'm the only one, but it's like this sort of, it's funny to me when like Christianity kind of mashes up with Santa and it's all kind of wrapped up together, and there's this song called, here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus, you know the one, yeah? There's this part at the end that as a pastor, right, as a theologian, I'm always like, what do I do with this? Here's the line, Santa knows we're all God's children, that makes everything right. I'm like, what just happened here? Like... So now you have Santa who's theologically imposing the adoption of God's family. I'm like, I just, I just turn it off. My like, kids were listening to Joy to the World. Here's the thing. Uh, that's not an evil song. That's fine. Whatever. But it always just cracks me up. It's Santa knows we're all God's children. That makes everything right. I'm like, that makes everything crazy. Anyway, when people say we're all God's children, they're right and they're wrong. In a sense, if they mean we're all created by God and we're all made in God's image, 100% right. And I can get with that. But the Bible says, interestingly, when humans made the choice to rebel against God after the fall, there's this sense in which you're not automatically God's children, right? So that in fact, you're, you're dead in sins and transgressions, and something has to happen to become a child of God. And the Bible understanding of how a person becomes a child of God is so beautiful. The Bible understanding is adoption. Now, if you understand adoption just take earthly adoption you understand a lot about the rich theology of what it means for someone to become a child of god just look at earthly adoption think about an adopted family uh, adoptive family you know or think about you yourself if you were adopted or if you've adopted a child and you've walked down this road what a beautiful thing that is for one thing in earthly adoption uh, adoption is fundamentally not up to the child being adopted it's the decision of the parents and the parents do what? Well, in the case of international adoption, the parents, they travel. Part of the big cost of adoption is airfare to the far country. They travel and they deal with all this bureaucracy and they deal with all these lawyers and they deal with all these things and it costs a tremendous amount of money. If you've not been through this road or you don't have someone close to you who's been through this, then you can just Google it. You can find out. It costs a tremendous amount of money for this adoption to happen. 
And then through the process of some court or some judge, somebody makes a ruling, they sign a paper, or I don't know if a gavel literally falls down, but in some way, it go, there's this amazing moment where the kid goes from being, not my kid, not my kid, not my kid, my kid. That's crazy, right? If they annoy me, I make them go home. Suddenly, if they annoy me, oh snap, they are home. There's no going home, they're, they're, right? I, 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 I push them away if, they get, if I get tired of them. To suddenly, they, I, I draw them close if I get tired of them. Like they, they, I have to give them more attention and, and uh, extra care, right? A judge decrees them legally part of the family. Now, if you understand all the intricacies of that, you understand the beauty of what it means, the great price that was paid for you to be adopted into the family of God. It means that God, the, the Bible says in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And Word is this little metaphor, we know it means Jesus because in John 1.14 it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What that means is God became little, became born as a little baby in a manger in Bethlehem and dwelt among us. And he, in a sense, he traveled to the far country. And that same chapter, John 1, says that all who, a lot of people rejected him, but everyone who believed in Jesus, everyone who put their faith and trust in him, to them, God gave the right to become what? Children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of a husband's will, but born of God born into this family. A judge, God Almighty, has signed off. He has written us in to the family of God. And it didn't just cost $50,000 or $100,000 or $200,000 or whatever adoption costs. It costs what? His own son's blood shed on Calvary's cross. That payment was made. That ransom for sin, Jesus' own blood, to what? To bring you into the family of God. To make you a son or daughter of the King. And that means for all who are in Christ, you are a member of the household of God. You are part of the family of God. Now that means you didn't, just think about adoption, that means you didn't earn your way into this family. It means you were bought with a price. That's a big difference. A lot of people, when they're new to the things of God, they think like most of us, right? If God is holy and God is pure, I mean, this makes sense. You see why people would think this. If God is holy and God is pure, I've got I've to get my life together. I've got to clean myself up. And if I get my act together, then maybe, just maybe, God will let me be part of his family. The gospel says the opposite happened. We, could ne- we were hopeless in our sins and transgressions. The fact is we were dead. It's like it w- impossible. At no point in Jesus' miracle of raising people from the dead, like John 11, Lazarus, at no point was Lazarus like, yo, let me out of here. Because he's dead, right? And spiritually, that's why we don't seek God on our own. Spiritually, that's why our only hope is we need somebody with resurrection power to call our name and bring us to life. That's what happened when you became a believer in Jesus Christ. And if that's not happened yet, I'm glad you're here because I pray that will happen for you. They call it being born again, being saved, bought by his blood. There's a million ways to put that. Invited Jesus into your heart. You became a follower of Jesus. But in that way, you became a child of God. It was a gift. And so that means you, you, you've got it backwards. If you think you have to work real hard to get into the household of God, it's actually backwards. Getting into the household of God is all about God's gift of grace. If there's any hard work, interestingly enough, the hard work is done now that you're part of the family of God. Did you ever think about that? 
The hard work is actually because you're already a member of the family of God. Let me illustrate with a commentator I read who was explaining the whole process of theologically of adoption. He says this, he writes this true story from his own life. When I was a child, my minister father brought home a 12-year-old boy named Roger, whose parents, Roger was in a bad way. Roger's parents had died from a drug overdose. There was no one to care for Roger, so my folks decided they'd just raise him as if he were one of their own sons. At first, it was quite difficult for Roger to adjust to his new home. This was the first time he'd been, been in an environment free of heroin-addicted adults. So every day, several times a day, I heard my parents say things like this to Roger. No, no, Roger. That's not how we behave in this family. No, no, Roger. You don't have to scream or fight or hurt other people to get what you want. Not here. No, 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 Roger. We expect you to show respect in, his fam- in, in this family. And in time, Roger began to change. Now, Roger, the question is, did Roger have to make all those changes to become part of the family? No. He was made a part of the family simply by the grace of the parents. But did he have to do a lot of hard work because he was in the family? You bet he did. It was tough for him to change. He had to work at it. But he could work at it motivated by gratitude for the incredible love that had been put into his life not out of guilt and insecurity, hoping he could remain a part of the family. Let's apply it to you. Do you have to change and clean your life up to be adopted into God's family? No. But now that you're in the family of God, is there a lot of hard work that must be done to bring our lives more in line with who God wants us to be? Certainly. But we don't do this work in order to become a son or daughter of the Heavenly Father. We make these changes because you are a son or daughter of the Heavenly Father. And now you do it out of gratitude. And so when I misbehave, I hear from the Holy Spirit, no, no, Tom, no. No, that's the old dead sin nature. That's the old family. Now, we, you don't do that in this new family. You don't have to live that way, right? So I do something out of anger and malice, and I hear the Holy Spirit say, Tom, come on, new family. You can put that stuff away. You don't need those weapons here. This, this operates on love, right? You, those defense mechanisms of fear and lashing out, what are you doing, Tom? Come on. New family. New identity. New name. Born again. So there's tremendous work that happens, but it happens because of who I am, not in order to make God like me or something. And all this means, household of God means exactly what you think it means. It means, look around, look at me, it means Christians. I'm talking to the Christians in the room. I hope if you're not a Christian, one day this can apply to you. Today it does not. To the believers in this room, It means we are family. You're welcome. That song is now in your head. Hear me clearly. The gathering of God's people, because there's a lot of misunderstanding on this point. The gathering of God's people is not like a family. The church is a family. Do you see the difference? It's not like, wow, metaphorically... Huh, when I look at you guys, it like, it reminds me, you guys in some ways are like a family. You know, you're the weird uncle and you're the crazy sister. You know, no, 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 no. 
We're not like a family. We are a family, right? A family is not just together out of an affinity. There is something much greater than them that has united them, some sort of biological connection. There is a gospel connection. If God is my father and God is your father, I am your brother. For eternity, you have me as your brother. Ponder that for a moment. Now, you may like me in small doses. But I want you to think long and hard about how long eternity is. And look up and down the row here at the Christians. This is, you have an eternal relationship with your brothers and sisters. There's an old, like, little preacher joke poem to live above with the saints we love oh that will be glory to live below with the saints we know well that's another story (laughs) that joke killed in the 30s the point is the point is and hopefully i can get an amen on this the point is god has a very colorful family amen I don't just mean we're from different races and nationalities and backgrounds. We certainly have a diverse, the family of God is very diverse. But what I mean is colorful in the other sense of the word. That uh, people are always shocked when people become Christians, they don't instantly become nice. But that's counterintuitive to everything we preach. You ever think about that? Like, God has this crazy family. And of course there's drama in family. There's drama in good families. But in the church of God, ponder this for a second. You are the, you are the gathering of the rescued from sin people. You are not the gathering of the really good and righteous people who need no rescuing. You're the train wrecks. If you were a gathering of righteous people who didn't need salvation, of course you'd get along better. You're the people who are so screwed up, you are desperate for a Savior, and now you've come together. And God gave us the church so we could practice love. So every week you could pick one of the sinners to tell all the other sinners, don't look at me. Don't look at each other. Let's all look to King Jesus. That's why we, you know, we come to his table, not pastor's table or this church's table. We just, we need Jesus. And that's, that's so funny to me. The, the place where you should find the most messed up folks is the, is the ER. It's the, right? it's the emergency room. Nobody goes in the emergency room and goes, there's a lot of wounded people around here. Right? You look at your invitation, it says country club. If you're expecting country club, don't be surprised when it's emergency room. But the great thing is, it's, 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 this, it's this blessed and beautiful kind of emergency room where you got people one day who are getting off the gurney, they're pulling the IV, and they're taking a chart, putting on the coat, and they're helping somebody else. Like, that's the great thing. It's like, it's not the emergency room where everybody stays. The goal of an emergency room is not, whoo, I've arrived. Cut the IV in, I'm going to stay sick forever, right? The goal is what? To heal others, to get up, to mature, to grow. The problem is it's a moving target. That's the crazy thing about church. And I know this as a pastor. One day, the people who are most healthy, the very next day, something rocks their world and they're flat on their back. Right? And so I don't know. Maybe there's a way. And like one thing we do at our church is we make everybody put a sticker on their forehead that day that says healthy or sick. And that, I'm just kidding. But you know, that really would clear things up though, right? 
Because the thing is, like, some days I'm like, I'm healthy. And then, rip, nope, I was till I got in the van with this family. They're your family. I'm not, right? You know, right? Everybody understand what I'm saying? We got this crazy emergency room where the healthier are the sick. And so people are coming. And, and everybody's like, well, you know, you have a very friendly church. You have a very unfriendly church. I'm like, who'd you meet that day, right? And it could have been the same person. So how in the world are we all supposed to get along? I mean, how can we expect this unity that Paul keeps talking about in the household of God when we have so little in common? I look around at my church, we have people from F, literally every tongue, nation, tribe, and language. And I'm like, I don't know that I would hang out with you people other than the gospel, and I, I don't think they would hang out with me, you know? So what is it? And the answer is, our growing connection to dad pulls us ever closer to each other. See, look. No matter how big the circle is, any two points on the circle, even if the two points are way far away, if both points will take a step toward the exact center of the circle, those points can't help but get closer together. That will work in your marriage if you are good at geometry. Because it's a little theoretical, but you understand? The way two points get closer together is by... by uh, here's a better example. For those of you who are not into geometry, but you're into music, how are we going to get this piano? How would you get a piano? How would you get a hundred pianos tuned together? How do you get a hundred pianos in tune? How do you get this uni un uh, unity? The last thing you would want to do is tune, tune the pianos to each other. All right, so you wouldn't work on tuning this piano to this piano and then tune this piano to, you know, you tune to me and I tune to you and we tune because the, the, by the time you've tuned this one to this one and this one to this one, now it's out of tune from the first one. So how in the world, you would take eternity to get a hundred pianos all tuned to each other. So the only way you would get a hundred pianos tuned to each other would be never to tune them to each other. You would strike one tuning fork and you would have each piano tuned directly to that fork. And if they're tuned to that fork, they will automatically be in tune with each other. And so A.W. Tozer wrote so long ago, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? And the answer is yes, it's occurred to you because I just ripped off Tozer's thing and told it to you. And so the answer is like, yes, Tozer. Yes, it has. Where have you been? He writes, they are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. Isn't that good? So 100 worshipers met together. Yeah, we get the metaphor. Tom just explained it. But he writes, so 100, metaphor, so 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they just to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and try to strive for closer fellowship. What you actually want in this church is accidental unity. Does that make sense? You want the whole church so focused on the cross and everybody driving toward that, that shoulder to shoulder you find you're unified behind the cross. That would be a much faster way to unity than turning to each other like, do you agree on this? Do you agree on this? Right? Turn, no, 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 no. We're shoulder to shoulder unified behind the same Lord. Accidental unity. And I'll say one more thing about the household of God. I do what I always do in these sermons. I spend all my time on the first point. So I'll, I'll, I'll move quickly to the other two, but I, I must play one more. As the culture hardens to Christianity, the whole idea of family of God taken in by his people, I believe will mean more than ever before. Christian fellowship with my brothers and sisters 
there was a time maybe in this country where, can I just say, it, it, it's kind of like fellowship is a luxury. Like as pastors, we almost had to like convince people, listen, you need each other. It's kind of like, well, the culture's kind of soft and cushy. I believe that if it's not already here, it will happen soon, that hill houses, these prayer meetings, like on December 23rd, all, all the rest, that these small group gatherings and our church services on Sunday, they will no longer be a uh, sort of luxury item in the Christian life. They will be breath and life and absolute necessity. So as you go through, yeah, right. So as you go through a week where you have been beaten up and persecuted and you're kind of clawing your way to Sunday, you gather with the others, the other winsome weirdos called Christians, right? That's my new thing. We're the winsome weirdos. You heard it here. Let's trend this thing. Hashtag winsome weirdos. As Christians, this is the new culture. This is the new reality, okay? We're these weird people at your workplace, all these things, that believe these crazy things. But we're not obnoxious weirdos. We're winsome. And that's what makes us so confusing. We believe these crazy things like Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Like, we actually believe a dead Nazarene Jew took a breath and walked out of a tomb. And yet, at the same time, we're feeding all these, these, this Longwood school district. And it's like, I don't get it. They're crazy, but I cannot. They really, like, are good people, right? It's like they're these winsome weirdos. That's us. That's us. Where people scratch their head long enough for God to reach them. As if all that's not enough. We are not only the family of God, the household of God. The Bible continues. Which is the church of the living God. This phrase, living God, is used no less than 15 times in the New Testament. Why? Over and over, the Bible seeks to remind us that you do not gather here this morning to remember our fallen leader our martyred prophet oh everybody remember the one whose memory we honored everybody let's all think about our leader jesus he's dead in a grave but let's all think about jesus peace be upon him he was a good leader he uh uh taught us and so you had a bad week and i had a bad week so let's do better next week because king jesus would have wanted us to do that right let's and so we're going to live our life in honor of his memory there are groups that do that there's a group that meets just a few blocks from our church there's an international cult that they follow this guru, this leader. He's from India. He immigrated to the United States, and they follow him. And a few years ago, the, he died. And I, I mean, I, I know a lot of these people, and I was talking to them, like, well, you know, what are you guys going to do? And eventually they decided we're going to keep meeting, and we're going to live lives that honor his memory. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that, okay. Uh, but what we gather to do is to glorify our living Lord. You don't have to think about what would Jesus do in this situation. You could just ask him you know, what he's going to do in this situation. Uh, let me read this to you. Um, uh, I, I won't be able to find it. Uh, Bill and Gloria gave. You know the story. When, uh, that song. What made me think of it was I didn't think I didn't think to say this ahead of time. But you guys sang because he lives. You know the story behind that. So the, the, the song was written in the '60s by Bill and Gloria Gaither. Um, and uh, uh, the, 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 she tells the story later about it. Uh, uh, and it was um, uh, the drug culture. The, she lists like all these things. And it was so amazing to me that, that you know, the, the events of this week, it could have been just transposed. I mean, same thing. She's looking around at all this darkness. And uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, she said the, the worst part was the existential thinking was floating through and the whole God is dead mentality floating through schools. And I'm, I'm just listening to this going, wow, does this sound at all familiar? And she got pregnant. 
And she said, and, and, oh, and, and at that same time, that's globally. Then personally, they were being accused. They were going through this really dark, dark time in their ministry. Darker than they'd ever had in any other point in their ministry. And they were uh, crushed to the point of utter despair. And their question was, how can we bring a child into this world? And after the events of this week, parents, grandparents, don't you sort of feel the same way? Right? I prayed, and uh, as often happens, this peace of God flooded their heart and outflowed these lyrics, because he lives. Yeah, I can face tomorrow. And if you look, go home and Google it. The fourth verse is, a newborn child, something, something, there's nothing sweeter to hold him, but the only thing sweeter is one day I'll see him. Like, the the kid is in there. It gets its own verse, verse four, I think. Whatever, check me on that. But because he lives is the answer to why we can gather here. Otherwise, you just give up. I mean, stop. Education, that's what's going to help, right? God isn't helping. Politics will. Give me a break, right? He's alive. That's the hope. There's only one religion to me that takes seriously the evil in the world and the hope of God. You either have to be hopelessly naive to be a secular humanist and completely ignore evil, or you have to be completely in despair and ignore the hope. Only Christians can say, we believe in the absolute evil of the world, and we believe in the hope of God, and here's why. Bethlehem, right? I mean, the word, this is like evil, and God enters in, in this little baby, in a manger. He didn't send a politician with better legislation. He sent himself, his son. So when we gather to meet the living God together, this is the church of the living God. So you, so. So just be, be careful, I guess, because you're not just praying prayers to some dead statue. Like, he's alive. He hears this stuff, you say, in here. <laughs> he sees you when you're sleeping. <laughs> he knows when you're awake. Wow, we're back to Santa theology. Here's the thing. Listen to this quote from Annie Dillard. And I, I don't know, man, this is either going to be a hit or miss, but I hope it works. It's, 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 a, it's complex, so it's one of those things where you read it three or four times. I don't know if it works when you say it, but here you go. She's saying exactly what I'm trying to preach. Like the whole sermon she says in one paragraph because she's a better writer than I Here you go. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs. You know, when they're meeting in persecution, Rome's about to kill them and they're meeting in a burial underground tomb. She's like, they probably get it. But on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke when we gather? Or as I suspect, does no one maybe believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness that we wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Like we are coming before the living God when we come here. We shouldn't wear our Sunday best. We should wear crash helmets. Because who knows what power we invoke may come to pass. One last thing. Uh, actually, interestingly, I, I may point out, many, many of you, I mean, the church is packed lately. I mean, it's, it's so full. So, you know, this may be, um, 
ironic that I'm preaching this. That's a good thing. But uh, uh, the corporate gathering, the church, the ecclesia means the gathered ones, the gathering ones. So I'm just, I just want to say this, and I won't belabor it, because it's, again, you are all here. Uh, listening to a sermon on podcast is a good thing. Coming to church and hearing the word of God is better, right? Uh, uh, I, I, I am aware of the irony that some of you right now are actually listening to this sermon on podcast. So uh, here, listen, what I'm trying to say is it's not bad. Like, keep listening. Please do not press pause. I'm happy, but you, you should come here. It's good. I mean, I know some of you live far away. I get it. But like, go to the church that's near you. You come to my church. If you're in Queens, that's fine. Uh, singing to God is good in private. Singing God corporately is better. Uh, in the day of social media and Facebook friends, I get it, it's, uh, but it's no different. Martin Luther, years ago, over 500 years ago, found many people in his church were forsaking the gathering for social media. And so he tweeted, <laughs> listen to this quote from Luther, at home, in my own house, there's no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. You felt that. I have felt that. Good. Last thing, pillar and buttress of the truth. He calls the church three things, a household of God, church of the living God, and a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is surprising to me. Pillar and buttress. If you're an architectural person, you like to geek out on all that stuff. Interestingly, pillar and buttress. These words mean, pillar means support. It means pillar or support. Buttress means foundation. The church is the foundation, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Here's why this is interesting to me, and I'll be done. Uh, I would have thought that that's the other way around. That's what's surprising to me. Like, I read this, and I twisted it upside down. You know, I went to the Greek and everything, and it says exactly what it says. Like, I would have thought, this church is built on the foundation of the truth. But it's the other way around. The truth is built on the foundation of the church crazy so i thought this is i'm the i read all these commentaries and i I realized not many people thought about that and i thought well then i won't preach it but then i thought but i must i think there are two reasons why the why the church is called the pillar and buttress of the truth uh what it means i think a couple reasons one is our job then if that's true that we're the foundation and we're the pillar and buttress of the truth Our job, uh, first of all, I think that's in there that way because it means something positional. It means this. The church doesn't sit on top of the Word of God and take out the bits we don't like and put in the bits we like. We must come under the Word of God. See the difference? And that means the Word of God has to tell us. The Word of God reads us. Like We don't get to sit in judgment over it. It sits in judgment over us. And there's stuff here that offended people 2,000 years ago, and there's stuff here that offends us, and it's usually the opposite stuff. Like, they had no problem with some of the stuff that we are all been out of shape about, and we have no problem with the stuff that they would have been been out of shape about. And that's what makes sense. It's a living, breathing, you know, it's, it's the active Word of God, and it's, gonna, it's an equal opportunity offender. Every, everybody who's a sinner, it's going to eventually rub up against you. Why? Because it's telling you what to do, and we don't like that. But we sit under it as the pillar and bunch, and that means our job is simple. We are to hold forth the truth to the watching world. We bear witness to the truth. You know, so many people tell me they're bad at witnessing. I hear that over and over again. I talk to Christians. Why don't you share your faith? I'm lousy at witnessing. What do you mean? I won't know what to say. They're going to ask me something. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I don't know the Bible. I don't know what to say. You are so much better at witnessing than you know. You are so much better at witnessing. 
because you don't need to know what's it. Just bear witness to the truth you know. Just bear witness. He's not looking for somebody to defend his truth. Defending the truth of God. That's like defending a lion. Who's ever heard of defending a lion? Just let him out. The lion will defend himself. People trying to defend the word of God. Please, he doesn't need more defenders. He needs people who will bear witness. He'll turn him loose in the world. Pillar and buttress of the truth. And the, the other thing about pillar and buttress it, foundation is no one goes to a home. None of you who are home shopping and on your way home from church today will go to an open house. You will tour the open house. Not a single one of you. No matter how you describe the house. It's curb appeal, the number of bedrooms, it's hardwood flooring, it's beautiful windows. Not one of you will comment on the foundation and how beautiful it was. What would you think of that home? I'll tell you what takes your breath away. The foundation. It's the first thing you notice. Honestly, it's all you can notice. As I walked around, the floors, so firm. <laughs> nope. I'm sure there's cinder block. Like nobody notices the foundation, right? When you've been in the presence of God, nobody walks out and goes, now that was a well-decorated church. That was a great church. I like that preacher. You know, the music was a little flat. The preacher was a little long. Nobody, what they notice is the word of God. And they leave and they say, how dark are my sins, how good is my God. And that's the goal of the church. It's not to build some brand name for City on a Hill or New Hope Christian Church or Saddleback or North Point or where, you know, whatever. But to build up the kingdom of God. Nobody notices at the end. They notice this. The church is just a pillar and buttress of the truth. His word is truth. That's who he is. You can trust him. He was, you got to close with a hymn. The mystery of godliness. And here's the hymn he closes with. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit. Manifested in the flesh means Christmas. That's his revelation. Vindicated by the spirit. Vindicated, man. People have been throwing shade on you. People have been hating on you. Jesus is dead. Jesus is not the real Messiah. And then on the third day, he, roses, he, he rises from the dead. And everybody goes, ah, vindication. He was exactly who he said he was. Seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations is fun. Uh, na- nations, ethnos, that's slang for everybody who's out. All the pagans, right? And here, Paul says, the, the, the broad, broad love of God. That the beings who are closest to God and the furthest from God. Angels and pagans. Everybody has now beheld him. His love reaches all the way to the nations. Believed on in the world. Taken up into glory. His name is Jesus. And he is our soon coming king. That's what we're here on this Sunday morning about. That's the power. When I say you are the household of God, get back here next week. Don't miss, right? When I say you are the, the, the church of the living God, we are here worshiping the one who has all power, right? We are the household of God, the church of the living God. And this church is the p- pillar and foundation of his truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O oh God, for your great authority. Jesus, we thank you that you are manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. We thank you, Lord, you were seen by the angels, preached among the nations. Lord, we thank you that you were believed on in the world and taken up into glory. We praise you as our soon coming King. And I pray that this church and every church will continue to hold forth as a pillar and buttress of the truth to a thirsty world. I pray, oh God, that we would come each and every Sunday, that we would come thirsty for you that we would come expectant lord that we would not come to give you our best we would come to receive your best oh god that we would come hungry for the word of god that we would cling to it and that christian fellowship would be more than just a luxury lord it would be that necessity in these dark days 
We thank you, O oh God, for your hope, and we thank you that you are alive. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.